So, welcome today, welcome to Conduit, and uh, we are going to worship the Lord today, and uh, we're going to do a lot of it. So let's stand up, and let's start by singing from the day. Again, 
increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. Your kingdom
I just want to pray over him and invite you uh, to be challenged, your ears to be open, your hearts to be open uh, this morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for giving us worship, just the, the opportunity to center our minds and our heart around who you are through how we sing. <laughs> I'm sure most people in the room would agree that we can't sing very good. But to you, it's beautiful. So there's this amazing, intimate moment that haps, happens when we worship. And this morning, you're inviting us into a place that it's not just about a song, but something so much bigger. God, specifically, I thank you for Carrie, and I just thank you that you brought his family here. I know for a fact that this man has something for us to, to hear this morning from your word. So would you challenge us? Would you bring us to the place of how you've prepared his heart to share from his lips? Not just what we need to know, but what we need to experience this morning. Praise you, Father. We thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Am I on? Okay, awesome. So I am Carrie Byard, and I'm the worship director here at Conduit. And um, this is my first sermon ever. <laughs> so, all right. <clears throat> The, the downside of that is you get to hear my every single thought that I've had on this subject for my entire life <laughs> up to this point. But I, I hope to get you out before, before bedtime tonight. So, <laughs> all right. Um, but I do, I do love to teach. 
small groups. Um, I'm, I get excited about talking about God and about his word. And um, I, I realize, too, the weight and the responsibility of handling God's word. So I don't take this lightly. Can we pray again? <clears throat> Lord, we speak the name of Jesus over this place today. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes that you would take that veil away from our eyes, that you would unstop our ears so that we, can may hear, that we can hear your message clearly from your word and to know what you have to teach us today through your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so my first Sunday here was a little over a month ago, believe it or not, and my family and I have been blessed to get to know a lot of you and uh, to get reacquainted with a lot of you too. And um, I've been leading worship for 25 years now in various settings. They've all been very different from each other. And I started taking piano lessons when I was six. And I haven't stopped playing since then. <laughs> and um, I received my master's of music degree from Kent State University in uh, piano pedagogy and performance. And so I've been a musician for almost my whole life. And with that in mind, it's kind of the way my brain is wired. It's the way I think of everything. I filter everything through music. It's kind of like when an artist um, sees colors and shapes differently from everyone else. Or a contractor will see, like when a contractor walks into our house, they see everything that needs to be fixed all over the place. <laughs> um, but as a musician, I tend to think music right off the bat when I think of worship. But I think I'm not alone in that. I think that most people, when they think of the word worship, think of music together. If you remember in school, the, uh, the Venn diagrams, the, uh, the circles, you know, um, if you think of this circle representing all of music, so everything to do with music, and then this circle has everything to do with worship, and then bringing them together and where they overlap in the middle, this is probably a more accurate picture of how, view, how God views music and worship. So <clears throat> we hear this question a lot from people, how's the worship at your church? <laughs> and it's a funny question on many levels if you think about it. The person's probably talking about music. But what is the question really asking? The concept of worship is far, far reaching than just music on a Sunday morning or music on any day of the week, for that matter. And here's a disclaimer. This message is for me just as much as, as much as it's for you, because even though I've been a worshiper of Jesus for almost my whole life, I still have not gotten a full grasp of the, the fullness of the meaning of the word worship. And questions in my mind arise constantly about the nature of it. But you know what? Those questions are well worth pursuing because God is seeking. He's seeking for worshipers like you and like me who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So what is worship? Someone described it as a multifaceted gem. What's the meaning of the word worship? It comes from the old English word worthship with a th, acknowledging someone's worth um, at some point, the TH was dropped and it just became the word worship. You'll even hear it in uh, titles for nobility or important people when they're addressed 
of your worship. I'd like to walk with you through a brief journey of what the word teaches about the subject of worship. Let's begin by touching on some Old Testament examples of worship and trace a skeletal history of the subject. In Genesis, we see Cain and Abel. Abel was able to offer a better sacrifice than Cain. This was his act of worship. Cain was jealous. He killed his brother. And we find that Seth is born to continue the line of blessing and promise. And Seth grows up and has a son. And in in Genesis 4.26, I found this curious verse. It says, Seth had a son, Enosh, and at that time, men began calling on the name of the Lord. So I see that as a definite act of worship. Um, After the great flood, Noah built an altar and offered burnt offerings to the Lord as an act of worship. We come then to Genesis 12. We see uh, Abraham, uh, God asking him to leave his native country, and um, God wanted to show him a new country, and Abraham obeyed, which was, again, an act of worship. He obeyed. He showed, he showed his faith by doing that. And he goes to Canaan. And Abraham's first act of worship there was to build an altar and to dedicate it to the Lord, an act of worship. As we follow Abraham's life, we see other acts of worship, but perhaps the most memorable one being when God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he, he gets ready to do this. He prepares everything. And just as the knife was poised into the air, then he realizes that it was a test of his faith from God. That God asked him to do it. Abraham was willing to do it. And that was an act of worship. We see acts of worship from um, Isaac as he grows up. And then later from Jacob as well. If we fast forward, after God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he established worship rituals for the Israelite people. Beginning in Exodus 25, we see the institution of the tabernacle, showing God's desire to have place among his people. Now we can look back in history and see the amazing and beautiful symbolism in all the components of the tabernacle. And we see how it all pointed to the person of Jesus Christ. The most important thing about the tabernacle is that everything had to be done God's way. Um, Jake, could you put the picture up of the uh, tabernacle? So this is an artist's rendering of the tabernacle. Um, and this, the tabernacle was a portable place of worship that was used by the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness for the 40 years after they were um, delivered from Egypt. And it was set apart in the community with a courtyard enclosed by fabric stretched on poles. There was only one entrance. You can see the, the entrance of purplish red there. And um, <clears throat> this was always facing east. There was only one way to get in. There was a back door, no fire escape, anything like that. The entrance was as far as the common Israelite could go. From there on, it was only priests that could enter inside the courtyard. The one entrance reminds us that Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and also that he was the door or the gate of the sheepfold 
and that anyone who entered through him would be saved. John 10, 9. The first thing that you would see as you walked in the entrance would be blood. Acceptable animal sacrifices being prepared for the bronze altar. And you can see that that's the first um, piece of furniture that you come to. Right inside the entrance for the burnt offering. Also splattered with blood. This altar was the first piece of equipment in the furniture or the, the equipment or furniture in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And we can see now the foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect lamb shedding his blood as the only way of our coming in to the presence of God. The second article, the bronze laver, it's a big bronze urn of water used by priests for ritual cleansing. This foreshadowed the cleansing from our sins only Jesus can do. 1 John 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next, you would come into the tent of meeting. You can see the, the tent right there. If we could, um, let's see, have the next picture of the, the, the tent. It was a standalone tent at the west end of the courtyard. And you can see there's kind of a, a cutaway there, and you can see inside of it. You would enter into a glowing room with the golden lampstand on the left. <clears throat> this had seven lamps attached to it and was the only light inside of the tent. The lampstand reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world and that anyone who follows him will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. On the right would be the table of the bread of um, presence. This would be 12 cakes of bread, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And this foreshadows Jesus being the bread of life. In John 6, 48, Jesus says, Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. <laughs> Living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. Straight ahead, you see the, the curtain that's kind of cut away. <clears throat> there, there would be a thick curtain woven of blue and scarlet and, and purple thread and uh, with an altar in front of it. And this altar was the altar of burnt or the altar of incense. The burning day after day using a specific blend of ingredients that had to be strictly adhered to. The smoke from the incense ri uh, rises up up to God as a sweet-smelling offering. And it speaks of the role of Jesus as our intercessor and priest before God. Beyond this curtain, you see that small compartment back there. Only the high priest could go. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, this small represents God's dwelling place and it was called the Holy of Holies the most sacred part of the tabernacle the thick veil that we talked about uh, talked about acted as a barrier or a separation from the Holy of Holies and it has some beautiful symbolism as well uh, if we fast forward to when Jesus was crucified the veil in the temple in Jerusalem was, was torn from top to bottom after Jesus' crucifixion and death and this showed a couple of things. 
the veil represented Christ's body being broken for us, and that death opened up our access into the presence of God. Amazing. Uh, Hebrews 10 said, we, we can have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Uh, if we could see the next picture, this uh, in the Holy of Holies was a, was a piece of furniture uh, called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a box overlaid with gold, having carrying poles that were not allowed to be removed, and a solid gold lid with two statues of special angels called cherubim facing each other with their wings spread out like this. Think Indiana Jones, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe not, no. No, let's not go there. Um, inside the ark, you can sort of see an x-ray picture of what was inside the ark. Um, <clears throat> you can see the uh, tablets of God's covenant, the rod of Aaron that budded, and a golden jar of manna from when God uh, fed the people in the wilderness. The golden lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. And this represented the place of atonement or the covering of the sins of the people. This was also where the cloud of God's presence remained as a visible reminder that God wanted to dwell among his people. Though the or through the prescribed manner in which worship had to be carried out, God showed that it, or that it could be done only his way because he is a holy God and can only be approached in holiness and that he can provide only for a sinful people by the blood and the death of his son, Jesus. After the Israelites went into the promised land, we see how the worship of the foreign people kind of leaked in to the purity of the worship standards that God had set out. And this led to the people going into idolatry many times and uh, worshiping false gods with pagan practices, building altars, shrines, statues. These practices were condemned by God through the prophets of the Old Testament. New Testament worship, though, had a whole different dynamic because Jesus had already come and given his life as a payment and a cleansing for sin. The Jews had a faith that looked forward to what the Messiah would do, but we now in the New Testament have, or after the New Testament, have a faith that looks backwards to see what Jesus the Messiah has already done for us. And we can be so thankful and so joyful now because our sins can be completely forgiven. We learn in Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but the blood of the perfect spotless lamb, Jesus, can take away sin. <laughs> and what does that do to you right now? Isn't that awesome? Do you believe that? I do too. We also learn in the New Testament that true worship uh, was that which occurred under the influence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and had nothing to do with location. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, could you turn to John chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 21. And this is um, the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus talking with her. John chapter 4, verse 21. And he says, woman, Jesus replied, 
Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we learn from this that God is looking. He's seeking for worshipers. He's looking for you, and he's looking for me, and those who will worship him in, him in spirit and in truth. Just a side note, too, the, the day of the Jewish Sabbath was replaced by meeting publicly on Sundays to worship in celebration of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. <clears throat> so here we are today. What does all this mean for, for you sitting here today? That same spirit that existed in eternity past and that same spirit that hovered over the waters of the earth at creation, and the same spirit that manifested himself in the cloud and in the fire in the days of the tabernacle, the same spirit that came upon David, the shepherd, to play for Saul on his harp and to soothe him, and then later as King David to write beautiful psalms of praise, and that same spirit <laughs> that raised Jesus from the grave <laughs> is the same spirit that manifests himself and you and me today in God's children in our hearts just like the, ta the tabernacle but better God has chosen to make his dwelling place among us again not in a certain place or a tent or a certain building or a certain mountain but right here <laughs> can you say woo <laughs> doesn't that blow your mind Wow. What role does music play in worship? Music can be a powerful vehicle for conveying the cry of our heart in worship. I want to concentrate on the word vehicle here for music used in worship. The definition of vehicle is also interesting, uh, one of them being a means of transport, which makes sense. And you know, I, I found a synonym which was really cool. Do you know what it was? for vehicle, it was a conduit. That's what it said. So, so music is used as a means of transporting, conveying, expressing our love and our thanks to God. The Bible is filled with commands to express our praise to him through music. And um, I have a bunch of verses that we're going to put up on the screen here, starting with Psalm 95. You don't have to look these up because I'm just going to shoot through these. This is Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in heaven. Praise him for his power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The Lord. <laughs> it, it sounds noisy, doesn't it? Um, Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. 
Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Psalm 71 <laughs> gives us a reason to shout. My lips will shout for joy when I, hear, when I sing your praise, I whom you have delivered. Psalm 33 mentions using new music. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Psalm 40 talks about using music as a means of telling people about God's good news. And it says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. I'm just going to read a part of Exodus 15. This is just a part of the song of deliverance that Moses and the people of Israel sang after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And it says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. It goes on and on and on for a long time. But the recounting of the Exodus story as an act of worship is a great lesson for us that is so important for us to remind ourselves out loud of who God is and what he's done. Rehearse that. If he's done something in your, in your life, rehearse it and say it if you want to. <laughs> um, in um, Zephaniah 3.17, I couldn't resist putting this in because it describes God singing. And it says, the Lord, your God, is with you the mighty warrior he saves he will take great delight in you in his love he will no longer rebuke you but will rejoice over you with singing <laughs> isn't that great uh, some new testament examples from colossians three sixteen. this talks about um, using music horizontally as counseling and teaching each other and then vertically for praising god it says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Ephesians 5, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Debauchery means corruption or depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts 16, we see a prison scene here where God does something miraculously in the middle of worship. <clears throat> and it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Mm. Just like in the Song of Moses and in many other examples, God's people used music to remind themselves of who he is and what he has done. Be aware of this when you, when you sing because you are reminding yourself of the very same thing. Um, I, I pulled up a couple songs from the archives, <laughs> and in these next few songs, um, there are some lists of who Jesus is, who God is, and what they have done, 
and just take those things in and remind yourself as you sing that, remind yourself of who Jesus is to you personally. Let's sing. My 
Messiah 